I mentioned last week that as I'm between Philippians and our next series, uh, I wanted to take a few Sundays and not only go through the Psalms, which is something I'll do a little later, but walk through what it means to be a good church, uh, to be a healthy church. Uh, I, I mentioned last week, I think one of the challenges sometimes the church fails to take up is the challenge to teach its church how to be a church. We just presume you know, like young couples getting married often presume that, you know, marriage is easy because they just so deeply love one another. And if you talk to any couple who has years um, of faithful marriage under their belt, they're like, it, it's work. And that sounds so unromantic, like it's just counterintuitive maybe that it's hard to walk in faithfulness in a marriage for decades because it's hard. You're a sinner married to a sinner. I don't know why we would think it would be any less different within the church that not, we're not just two sinners, we're, and we're a crowd of sinners. And, and because of that, I think it's even more necessary for us to make sure that we diligently understand and investigate what it means to be a good church. And that we submit to that, that we, whether it's counterintuitive or it seems somehow um, different than we might think, that we make sure that we look to God's word and we understand how to be a good church. I think one of the clearest texts for that is here in Acts 20. Just uh, some context that you'll see within the text probably as we read it, but I just want to point it out to you. The Apostle Paul's ministry to the Ephesians, he had been there for about three years, now he's left, left Timothy in charge, right? And he's coming back through as his, his ministry is winding down. He's heading back to Jerusalem, and he knows that when he goes to Jerusalem, that it's not going to be a pleasant trip. He knows he's going to suffer, and he knows that he will never see the Ephesians again. And he says that in the text we're about to read, but I want to make that clear to you. So this is somewhat of his final charge to this church that he helped to start years before. He had ministered for three years among it, and now he's leaving behind precious loved ones that are both converts that he probably led to the Lord, as well as those he's discipled, both elders and people he's probably never going to see again. And so he's in a nearby city, Miletus, and you'll see in verse 17, he calls for the leaders of the church to come, and he sits them down and challenges them. Here's how you need to act while I'm gone. Here's how you need to behave since I'm no longer going to be able to be the apostle of the church of Ephesus. I'm gone Here's what you need to do. And that's where we'll pick up reading in verse 17. Uh, scripture says in Acts 20, verse 17, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, 
to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd, that's the word care there, to shepherd the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those whom are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that in these hands... You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities. Let me just reread that clearly on the context. You yourselves know that these hands of mine ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. And all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. And they embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. That's a pretty sobering moment, isn't it, within the life of the church? You can sense the heaviness of Paul and the burden he has. I want you to consider how he looks at this church, the danger he knows they're in. It's almost as though... Having left behind the security of the Apostle Paul, they are now a body without an immune system. Or maybe I should say, without Paul, the Apostle, as their primary immune system. And so he's saying, hey, there is one, there is an immune system God has built up for the church because there's dangers. In fact, if you look down in verse 25, Paul mentions he's gone. He says that at the end of the uh, the chapter that Luke, as he narrates this, says they're most sad because they wouldn't see his face again. But verse 29 and 30 tell us the danger particularly. Look at those verses with me. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you. Now that idea of fierce wolves is because he's building that idea of a flock. Right, he says, shepherd the flock. Why? Because there's fierce wolves coming in. So he's using that metaphor to drive that idea of danger And so he's calling us all sheep, and and he's saying this is God's flock, and these sheep are in danger because there's going to be fierce wolves, ravenous wolves who tear up and chew up the people of God. If you continue reading on in verse 29, he says, from among your own selves. So not only are there fierce wolves, where are the fierce wolves likely to come from? Within the church, perhaps even within the elder team. That is, very rarely is the church devoured by false teachers who are clearly not Christian. The dangerous ones are the ones who come to you. As 2 Corinthians 10 says, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And so do his 
teachers. Right? So they come in and say, hey, yeah, I don't know, we're good Christians here. We love Jesus. We're doing the Jesus thing. It says, be careful, there might rise from among you false teachers. Now look at how he describes them. They will speak twisted things. So they'll take the truth and they'll twist it off course. They'll pervert it. They'll change the truth slightly. Well, it's helpful for us to know because, again, we are being warned that the dangers within our church are, in fact, ones within our church. From those who claim to believe the truth, those who with maybe sincere faith and seemingly sincere doctrine begin to gradually reshape the truth, calling it the truth, calling it Christian, and reshaping it, twisting it, perverting it. Why? To draw away disciples after themselves. In other words, they are they're not only calling people to defect from Christ, they're doing it because they want them to defect to Christ unto themselves. So what's the apostle's immune system, if I can use that phrase again? What's his immune system for, for the danger that could happen? Maybe from the person sitting next to you, which I realize is probably your spouse, but just for sake of illustration in terms of metaphorically, the, the, the people in this room are in fact much more dangerous to us spiritually than the kook on the radio or, or the random book in the Christian bookstore that's clearly not Christian. The biggest danger is from people we think we should trust. People who say good things, generally speaking, but begin to shape and twist the truth. I suggest to you that the apostle tells us particularly in verse 28, and if I kind of use that as, as the nucleus of, of studying this whole passage, it's kind of that central verse that helps us to, to understand this entire text well. Look with me in verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Now, if we're going to use the old English word, we'd say this, over which the Holy Spirit has made you bishops. To pastor the church of God. You catch that? Like he's using two terms we would use for church leaders, pastor and bishop. And if you go back to verse 17, what does he call these people? He says, from Miletus, Luke records that Paul sent and said, who needs to come to him? The elders. So if you put, if you kind of jam this together into like one clean sentence, he calls the elders, they're sitting in a room, and he says, you are overseers, who are called to pastor. So elder would speak to the dignity of the person, uh, their wisdom, their ability to, to manage the circumstances within the church. They are called overseers. That seems to be a term for leadership, as in management. In fact, um, God, who judges the ungodly, is called their overseer. Um, it's a military term for leaders. Ship captains were called overseers. Rulers of people, people in Isaiah 60, uh, I think I mentioned Moses, supervisors in the temple, they're all called overseers. So you might think of oversight as merely just looking over, as in overlooking, looking over, which would only have the idea of like maybe someone who sees or surveys. But the point is actually one of leadership and management 
with careful oversight over and responsibility for those under you. That's what, that's what it means to be an overseer. It's someone who um, rules and governs and cares for. And he does this, verse 28, by shepherding, by pastoring. Uh, we, we have, again, I, I think English, because it moves so much, we sometimes lose this connection. Um, pastoring, you are familiar probably with the sister word, pasture. You know, so like a field where sheep eat grass is called a pasture. So old English, you know, sheep and, and shepherds, they're, they're pastors in the pasture, right? Like, like those words are sister words. They come from the same roots. So when we look at this and he says care for, he's saying this is what pastors are. Pastors are shepherds who care for the flock, who guard the flock from fierce wolves, they protect, they care, they lead, they feed, they nurture. How do they get to be there? Because I think this is essential for us to see in this, that the church is protected by designated leaders. So who designates them? Look with me at verse 28 again. It says, pay, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Who made them an overseer? The Holy Spirit did. And when we go to 1 Timothy, when Paul writes a letter to this lead pastor, he says, if anyone desires the office, he desires a good thing. So God uses the desires of shepherd, well, maybe I should say, yet to be, like potential shepherds. He uses those desires. He uses the leadership of already established shepherds like Timothy to help filter. And then I would suggest to you that the appointment should be by the church if the church is the pillar and ground of the truth so that you get this concert of, of work within the church to establish its leaders. And when the apostle describes to those leaders how they got there, what does he say led them to this place and position? He said, you've been appointed by the Holy Spirit. I think this is helpful for leaders to understand and the church to understand that God puts its leaders over the church. And therefore, in some sense, as leaders lead and the church follows along with those leaders, they are doing so because they honor the Lord, not just the leaders. The disassociation of human leaders from the appointment by the Holy Spirit will inevitably undermine the leadership of the church. And yet, in the next few verses, the apostle warns these churches, that, or these elders, that wolves could come up from within their own midst. And so we need to be cautious that we don't just ignore accountability of these God-appointed leaders. In fact, look back in verse 24 with me. The apostle says it's about himself. He says, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus Christ. The apostle looks at his own ministry as something he does because God gave it to him. Paul, what are you doing and why are you doing it? I'm ministering because Jesus told me to. This is not something he does out of his own free will. He makes that clear in 1 Corinthians, that he is like a slave 
Christ has appointed to him this task. He does it in obedience and honor for the Lord. Um, often in premarital counseling, I'll talk through leadership, and I'll, I'll often ask the uh, groom-to-be, why does God delegate you to be the leader? And I'll set them up. Like, is it because you're smarter? And you can see them like this, like, uh, they're looking at their fiancé. Like, is it because you're smarter? And, and, like, inevitably, I have to, like, usually bail them out because it's, like, totally, it's not meant to be, like, that tricky. But, I mean, I would assume, generally speaking, guys and girls are about the same intelligence, which means it's about a 50-50 proposition about which one's smarter in that room. But it's a 100% proposition about who's to lead. Pastors don't lead because they're the smartest people in the room. Nor do we follow them because they're the smartest. Pastors lead because God told them to. God appoints them. And so as the church, we follow shepherds and are under their care. This is how God protects us from evil doctrine, from twisted teaching, because God has appointed these leaders to do this task. Because he's called them to shepherd like Christ in 1 Peter 5. Not only are they designated leaders, number two, they are diligent leaders. This is probably the, the main body of the sermon if you're wondering where we're going to spend most of our time. Then you look at this text, there are numerous words for the care of a pastor or an elder or a bishop. Um, by the way, I think it's fair to use all of those words interchangeably in some sense. Um, my cultural background, pastor is kind of my... Um, niche word for that leader position. I don't mind if you use elder. Um, I'm not super comfortable with bishop, although I guess I theologically am okay with it. It's just weird to me, but uh, that's how it sounds in my ear. But, but biblically, those would be okay, right? Like God is the one, the Holy Spirit's the one who appointed you this, overseers. And so, so we can call the men who lead the church elder, overseer, or bishop, I suppose, or you can call them pastor, you can call them shepherd if you want to be a little more up-to-date in your English. Uh, it doesn't matter what name we call them. I, I think those titles speak to their duty, their task, and their dignity. And so we should, should recognize that's what we should expect of and hold our, our pastors accountable to do. But they're to be diligent. Diligent at doing what? Look back in verse 28. He says this. He says, pay careful attention. And then he says, shepherd the church of God. That's that ver verbalizing of that word shepherd. Make sure you're shepherding. In fact, I think all English translations, except for the ESV, all the major ones, say shepherd. Shepherd the church. In fact, verse 31, therefore be alert. Okay, so there's this call for shepherds to be actively engaged at looking among them, at the people around them, evaluating and calling them to follow after Christ. And shepherds are on guard, they're theologically aware, and they're evaluating the flock of God. This requires then that both sheep and shepherd be in contact. Um, if, if you want, it's just like a side slam at our culture of virtual church. It's trash. How in the world does a pastor know who you are and what you're struggling with if you're watching on TV in a gymnasium six zip codes away? 
Like, how can that man shepherd you? And how can you possibly identify yourself as a sheep under this shepherding team, this elder team, these overseers who can't even see you? So if you are a part of our church, I would assume that that means you have to be a visible part of our church. If you are absent a lot, or if the pastors cannot get in touch with you, or in fact your home is unwelcome to them, then we would recognize, I think, both whether it's the pastors not doing what we should do, or as a flock, you being too apart from us, that there is some dysfunction for which we need quick restoration. I'm trying to be careful not to throw like a sin charge on anyone's account, but I would say at least there's dysfunction there that may be sinful, either by pastors or by people. But that needs to be, there needs to be some quick and, and urgent fixing of that, that, that disconnect. Pay careful attention. Care for this church. Be alert. Now, I would suggest to you that as we look at that pay careful attention, if you didn't notice, in this immune system, pastors aren't without need either. Look at what he says there. Pay careful attention to whom? Pay careful attention to yourself. This is similar to what he tells Timothy. I mentioned Timothy is the pastor here. In 1 Timothy 4, he tells Timothy directly, keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching or your doctrine. So it's not only that, it's not like, again, it's not pastors are not unmovable, doctrinal granite that can't be shaped by the winds and the false doctrines of the world around them. They can What's the solution? What's the preventative for these men so that they don't stray from the truth and they don't shepherd in a misguided way? What's the solution for them? Look down with me into verse 31 and 32. He goes, 31, Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears, And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance. So he's talking to the elders, and he says, I did not cease to minister among you, verse 32 then, and I commend you to God and his word. Again, those those are probably related words. It's something like this probably would be an easier way to understand it. I, I commend you to God through his word. In other words, it's it's God using his word. Not as though they're two separate things, but they're related things. And then he says that the word which is able to do what? Build you up. He uses that uh, like a, a, a household building word. That is, you elders need to be recipients of God's sanctifying grace. This happens through his word as you pastors as you elders are being strengthened and built up so shepherds are not only like delegated by god to this task that the way they're diligent isn't merely by caring for the flock but is by being very careful to be diligent in the word so that they themselves don't have corrupted hearts twisted by false doctrine so if you want to pray for your pastors If you want to love your pastors well, plead with the God of grace that he would give strength of will and freedom of schedule that your pastors would be men of the word. 
that God's word would have free reign to move and shape them, that God would guard their hearts from false doctrine, that their viewing of television programs would not corrupt their soul, that the books they read would shape and sharpen them to be more like Christ, not less like him. But I want you to consider that they're not only diligent in the word for their own sakes, they take, take care to watch for themselves, but also for what? The flock. That they care about the people of God. In fact, get, get, get the text open in front of you. If you have your phone, it'll be less valuable, but still really good. I want you to go through this passage and see with me how the apostle talks about his ministry. And how often he tells them he used the scriptures to minister to them. Going back to verse 20. He says, I did not shrink from declaring anything that was profitable and teaching in public and from house to house. So where's the apostle teaching them? In moments like this, but also moments in their own homes. Verse 21, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Christ. Again, go down to verse 24. This is what God has called him to. He received this from the Lord to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Verse 25, I know that none of you whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom, he has proclaimed the kingdom of God to all of them. Verse 26, I did not shrink from declaring the whole counsel of God. So he's preaching publicly and privately and house to house, he is declaring to every one of them God's word, the gospel of grace, preaching the kingdom, and he is doing it so that he preaches how much of the Bible, the scripture? The whole council. Man, this guy's inexhaustible. Like, I'm tired just reading this. Think about how faithful this man was to work with these people to get the scriptures into their hearts and heads so that they might be shaped to look like Jesus Christ. It's because he has a clear confidence that it is God's word which builds the heart, strengthens the person to look like Christ. If you're ever looking for a church, I would trust that our church defines this, that we live up to this, and by God's grace we are doing so, but this passage beggars all of us. You look at this and you're like, Paul is not merely bragging, he's exampling. Right? He's not saying, hey, look at me, everyone, I'm so cool. He's saying, look at how this is to be done. This is how we are to be working. We preach the word, we testify to the gospel of grace, we declare everything that's profitable, we teach in public and in house to house. And so as these pastors are alert, as they're paying attention, they're listening to ways in which faith is weak, faith is in, un, uninformed, faith is being twisted, and they bring God's word as it gives profit to instruct, encourage, and build up. This is how you should pray for your pastors. When you and if you ever look for a church, this is the type of measure by which you value and evaluate leaders of the church of Christ. Verse 31, I did not cease night or day to admonish 
Some of you have heard the phrase nuthetic counseling. It's kind of going out of style as a term. I hear it less and less, but in the Christian counseling movement in the 90s, this was the rage. This was the term they would use. It has the idea of admonishing. That's that Greek word to admonish, to give biblical counsel and confrontation to guide them, to straighten them from out of twisted doctrine and life patterns. Admonish everyone with tears, he says. He had a thorough ministry. He was diligent to feed people the scriptures. Let me read from Ezekiel 34. Um, Do note, I may preach from Ezekiel soon. That might terrify some of you if you've read the book. But this this is the type of text I would like to look at. Ezekiel 34, this is the Lord identifying himself as the shepherd of Israel. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and I will bring them into their own land and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the rivers and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture. And on the mountain of the heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pastures they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. And the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. If God is our example of what a shepherd should be, God is merciful to the worn and weary. He is supporting to those who are stumbling. And he is vengeful and protective against those who want to fleece and steal from the flock to hurt and injure her. God is a sweet shepherd. He calls men into this position to be under shepherds. That is, we shepherd God's flock and we should do it like he shepherds his flock. It's just so sweet to think that God wants to be the shepherd of his people. To be with his sheep. To know them and pursue them and restore them. And that should be the heart of all of God's people towards one another. Is that your heart to this flock? You could not be more Christ-like than to be someone who cares for the flock of God? Do you love them? Do you pray for them? Do you think of them? Do you see the discouraged and seek to encourage them? Not with just like, hey, it'll get better, but with Scripture. It is God's Word which is able to build us up. And I think that brings us to this last consideration. So we have designated leaders. God has appointed leadership, which means he's appointed us in our roles to walk with leaders well. And those leaders are appointed to minister the word and to walk as examples of godliness. But they're also to be diligent leaders, diligently meeting with God's people, teaching and instructing, admonishing, correcting, bringing health and healing to those who are hurting, 
rebuking those who are proud and in sin. But can we also just encourage you that what motivates a devotion, which is the third idea I think we see in, the, in verse 28, is understanding theologically what exactly the church is. Why don't you look back, back at verse 28 with me? He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseer, overseers to shepherd, notice this next line, the church of God. Well, why is it God's church, which he obtained with his own blood? Now, I, I think there's a little bit of a translation flaw in most English translations here. I don't think the point is God gave his own blood. I think we could rephrase that a little bit better by saying something like this, that, that God has obtained the church with blood from his own, referring to Christ. So it's not like God's blood, but it's blood of his precious son by which he purchased the church. But as you unravel that in your minds, think about what he's saying to these elders. You have a, have a commitment to be very devoted to this group of people. Well, why, Paul? Because it's God's people. People that he has purchased and obtained for himself that he owns. Well, how much did that cost God? The blood of his precious own son. Well, how devoted should that pastor then be? How serious the cause to which these elders are called, that this church to which they are ministering has a price tag on it. And it has now been purchased so that it is God's own, and that price tag is the blood of his own precious son. How could they do anything less than be fully devoted to the care and the health and the doctrinal rightness and the gospel faith of this group of people? It's no wonder, Paul says, he didn't cease night and day to admonish them with tears. He saw himself as part of the protection, the immune system that protected this church and kept them faithful to God. When I was younger, there's a boy in, our, in my youth group when I was growing up. He was small and sickly. He had an autoimmune disease, and he could not resist infections. He was always sick, always just liable to any virus or any infection. He had no resistance. He would miss school for months at a time, get healthy, come to school, and get sick again immediately. It just ravaged his body. And that's what happens to the church without shepherds. God says, this is how I've placed the shepherds to guard the flock to protect it from men who want to use the flock for their own advantage. Many want to take and steer the flock from worshiping the Son of God to, to stroking their own egos, to lifting up their, them in their own pride, to giving them financial security. God has no love for the shepherd who fleeces the flock for his own gain. Instead, he is to be cast out as a ravenous wolf. Even Paul's care on finances. Look in verse 33 with me. I coveted no one's silver or gold clothes. And we could probably put cars or house there too, like in American culture. You yourselves know that with these hands of mine, 
You might want to write that in there because it's a reference to Paul's own hands. It's almost as though he's talking to the elders and he holds out his hands like I'm doing now and says, you know that with these hands, I minister to my necessities and to those who are with me. Talk about a hardworking man. He labored sewing tents and selling them in the marketplace so that he could take care of his needs so that he didn't offer the gospel with a price tag and therefore kind of corrupt the clarity of the message of grace. Or look like a peddler of the gospel who's using this message that is so precious and so valuable in order to get financial money back. He, it seems as though his pattern was to almost never receive money from those to whom he preached. I mean, he would take money from churches he had already planted to minister the gospel to others, but he didn't want to confuse the message by giving it and asking. So not only does he work for his own food, he works for the food of Luke and Timothy and others. While preaching and praying and going house to house and starting a church. He is working as a businessman. He's selling tents. He's doing it so much, uh, so faithfully that he's able to support himself and others with him while also satisfying those statements before that he said he did not shirk the responsibility of preaching the gospel, pleading with people night and day. Continuing on, look at verse 35. In all these things I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. Now all of a sudden he includes them. <laughs> and the elders, elders are being told really clearly they must do what? Let me just read to you the translation here in the ESV in case you missed it. We have shown you that by working hard. Pastors must be hard workers. I had the joy of listening to a podcast this last week sent to me by a church member that basically said, do the hard things. Now, unless you think I was a particular like, target of that podcast, there are like 15 of us in this message, but I probably needed to hear it more than anyone else. Pastors should be hard workers. In this podcast, they started talking about fat pastors. That is the phrase they use. So, so, I mean, it's a little bit harsh. And they basically said, pastors of all people should be men who are disciplined. They're not wrong. I don't think my waistline matters too much, but if it's an expression of a lack of hard work and discipline and faithfulness to God, it's an indictment against my role as a pastor to be hard working. We must help the weak, remembering it's more blessed to give than receive. I, I mentioned I feel beggared by this passage. I, I feel like when I read this passage and I see the role of a shepherd as one appointed and chosen by God over God's precious people that he has purchased with blood of his own so that the pastor be devoted to faithful ministry publicly and privately, not ceasing to pray for and plead with God's people in the ministry of the word that they be holy and secured from the faith. I do not feel like I line up. I feel woefully short. So I'd ask that you pray for me, that you pray for our pastors, that you pray for the needs we have to hire more, that you consider the role that God has called us to, and you hold us accountable. 
I mean, I don't want to be a church that's like, yeah, you know, pastors are doing their best, but what are you going to do? No, there's an accountability that's expected. We read a text like this. I think we should echo the call of Paul and all the leaders of this church to live up to the example, to live up to the standard. And if we can't, then we should be held accountable and removed. I mentioned this a few weeks ago when someone has asked me about what I was going to preach. I'm like, well, one of the things I, I am concerned about within the church is, um, so I, I realize I probably should have said this in the introduction, but, but I'm, I'm concerned that the church doesn't see the need for the church. Particularly, I think, because we are a culture that doesn't like leadership and authority, I think pastors particularly are seen as unnecessary or unimportant. As long as we get good sermons that are interesting, we don't care who delivers them. And I, I, I know I've said this to a couple of you, so I remember this joke, and it just reminded me of, of how I'm kind of considering this passage. The joke from high school that I remember was, what do you get if you play a country song backwards? You get your wife back, your dog back, your house back, get your car back. And, and you know, like, you know, country songs being maybe melancholy, you lose all these things in the country songs. And, and my thought is, like, what do you lose if you lose a pastor? What do you lose if you lose godly shepherds? And I would say this text tells us that you lose the protection that God has designed to save us from doctrine that will send you to hell. You've lose the defense against those false teachers that will tell you that your money will bring blessing to you and they thereby take your money and leave you not even godly about it. In other words, they're greedy for your money, your clothes, and your car. They don't care about your spiritual state. I think they leave you unpreached to. Remember how many times Paul said he admonished, he preached, he warned, he proclaimed, he declared, he, he gave the message? Pastors are to be preachers. So I'd say this, what do you get if you lose a pastor? Or what do you lose if you lose a pastor? You lose the preaching ministry that brings about robust Christianity. You are going to be malnourished, spiritually weak, and inept. I realize preaching has probably fallen out of favor. I know 15 years ago when I was doing research on like styles of preaching, um, there was a huge trend to get rid of proclamational preaching, where it's supposed to be much more conversational, much more um, interactive and social in the preaching setting. And the point, the point being is, in our culture, no one likes authority, so stop being so authoritative. I think those are some of the dangers our culture presses on the church. That having leaders lead is actually somehow culturally distasteful. But if you lose pastors, if you lose the example of the Apostle Paul being um, repeated within the church in the modern era, we lose protection of the gospel itself. And if we lose the gospel of grace, we lose grace. So I would say this. Hold your pastors, the elders, the overseers of the church, accountable. Hold them up in prayer. Demand much from them. 
They must be hard workers, appointed by the Holy Spirit, diligent in the word to both instruct and be instructed by it. That's what the pastors must be. Anything less is failing to live to the standard God has required of us. And anything less will leave Crossway, any church plants, or any partner ministries woefully unprotected from the spiritual viruses that will wreck the church. And you and I and the churches across this nation will be like that poor boy in our youth group, unable to withstand a culture filled with garbage. However, I, I think God has been kind in many churches. I think there's a revival among pastors of doctrinal faithfulness. So pray. Pray that, a church, that our church gets one in our associate pastor position. Pray that our church raises up men for church planting, for missions that are like this. And then walk with us. I think our church is a joy to pleasure. I am constantly overwhelmed by the sweetness of our church and the ease with which it is that God has called me to this field to work it, this flock to shepherd it. I'm honored to be a shepherd here, so thank you for being in our church. Thank you for being faithful to the Lord. Don't stop being faithful to him. Let's work together as the flock of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, I pray that you would raise up men. Your son has declared that the field is white, ready for harvest, but the laborers are few. Father, would you from this church raise up laborers who are faithful, who are godly, who are diligent. Appoint them by your spirit to be leaders over your church to shepherd her with grace, with a biblical fidelity and faithfulness to doctrine with a resolve to be so devoted to the church which you have purchased by the blood of your own son that no one could doubt either their affection or loyalty to your people but, but through faithful ministry prayer proclamation counsel the church might be strengthened and built up in a full maturity, which is the measure of Christ. By Christ creating a body that reflects his glory, he might be glorified in this world as the church shines as a light. Lord, we pray for the leaders of this church and of churches of like faith. Within our community, we think of the men, we think of Lord Glenn and Grace Bible, of Living Grace, and of Sovereign Grace, and Rosedale Bible. Lord, these are sweet sister churches. We pray for their shepherds, that they would walk in the word, that they'd be faithful and courageous in ministry, that you would give them energy beyond the normal man, that they might labor night and day to minister the word publicly and in homes, that they might be faithful to the doctrine of the gospel of grace, that they might not twist it. Guard them from pride and selfishness. Lord, guard them from greed that they might not find themselves servants of money rather than servants of the Lord. Father, we pray for any church you might plant from among us, and we pray that you might do that quickly. You might raise up leaders from our church 
that you might help us to partner with godly men, that we might reproduce churches that share faith in our Lord Jesus Christ and a commitment to honor him through the preaching of the word, that the power of the Spirit might redeem and save many through the work of church planting. Lord, give us faithful men to shepherd new flocks. Lord, I also ask that you would strengthen our church to love and appreciate the leaders you've appointed over her, that we might be a church that is protected from the poison of false doctrine, those things that would seduce our souls away from faithfulness to the assembly, those thoughts that would cause us to lose joy in following after Christ. Lord, protect our church, we pray. Raise up godly leaders, we pray. Protect us through the ministry of the Holy Spirit as you use those godly leaders and strengthen the flock of God that this church for years and years to come might love Jesus Christ, be devoted to him, and please him in all its ways. For the name and for the glory of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.